0: to get their audio Got our crowd bustling into the room, and let's go. Oh, hi, everyone, and
1: welcome to February, the uh, month of love. As you know, if you've been uh, with us over the last few years, you know that I love chemistry. I love talking about it, and I especially love talking about the chemistry of love because there is a lot of chemistry there. <clears throat> oh, love. It is what makes the world go around. And what an interesting emotion it is. It is very hard to describe what love is all about. Why it is that uh, some fall in love easily. Why is it that there are so many fascinating stories about love and interactions? This is what we will explore today. And uh, obviously, because it is February, we have to start with the story of Valentine's Day, which is much, much more complicated than most people think. And no one has a real definitive answer about how it evolved. But we have certainly some clues. We can go back a long time to Lupercus, who was the Roman god. Uh, of uh, wild animals he's the one who looked after wild animals and he helped uh, the wolf take care of Romulus and Remus and if you know anything about uh, Roman mythology you know that Rome was uh, created by uh, the duo of Romulus and Remus brothers it actually took the name the city took its name from Romulus so it's called Rome not Remo and uh, Uh, the two brothers were raised by a wolf. It's a very interesting story. Of course, you can read more um, about it. And Lupercus was the god who helped the wolf raise the the infants. And uh, this has been celebrated since the third century BC by the feast of Lupercalia. And that was celebrated on February 15th by the Romans. The feast began, interestingly enough, with the slaughter of goats. Not a pleasant thing to think about, but that's how it all began, the Feast of Lupercalia. And the goats were slaughtered in a cave uh, on uh, on the territory today that that would essentially be the central part of, uh, of, of Rome. And that cave supposedly has been discovered. At least if you go to Rome, you will see a cave that they do show you as the Lupercal cave, where the Luperci, who were priests, slaughtered goats to begin this festival. And once the goats were slaughtered and skinned, they made little belts out of the goat skin and young men would go around slapping women with these uh, pieces of, of goat skin. Now, this was not a particularly romantic kind of of a situation. It was a sexually charged celebration and it began with an animal sacrifice. And supposedly there were couplings of all kinds, but essentially it was a festival that was supposed to ward off evil spirits and infertility. Now, Lupercalia was real. There's no question about that. I mean we have Roman mosaics uh, demonstrating uh, some of the uh, uh, activities and uh, because it had to do with infertility and coupling uh, the legend has it that this really was the beginning of valentine's day and uh, eventually it was transformed in in around the fifth century into valentine's day but how was it transformed? That takes us to the uh, third century um, uh, Christian priest by the name who who eventually became St. Valentine. It wasn't St. Valentine right away, it was Valentinus of of Terni. And uh, those days the Romans had a law that young men were not allowed to get married before they had served their tour of duty in the army because they wanted to keep the men from pining away for their loved ones back home. But uh, Valentine thought that this was not right. And he married the soldiers illegally. And for this, he was arrested and put in prison. While in prison, he became friendly with the blind daughter of his jailkeeper, as you can see in in the depiction here. And he miraculously cured her of blindness. Because of this, In the fifth century AD, Pope Gelasius I declared him to be a martyr because he was eventually executed by by the Romans, but he had stood up for the Christian faith. So he became a martyr. And the story has it that uh, uh, Gelasius I declared February 14th to be the day that Valentine's martyrdom would be celebrated. To take away attention from february 15th which was, which was lupercalia so he wanted to convert a pagan ritual into a christian one uh, that's the way the story goes uh, but as i said you know it's, these are probably apocryphal stories because there just isn't enough written history to track them down what we do know is that uh, Saint Valentine reputedly is buried in uh, the Basilica of Santa Maria in in, in Rome. Uh, well, not exactly buried, but at least his skull is there, which can be viewed. And there is the skull of Saint Valentine. And uh, of course, on February fourteenth, it's a particular day when people go there and uh, pay their respects to. Uh, St. Valentine. But the idea that Valentine is associated with love uh, didn't come about until much, much later. So although certainly St. Valentine was a Christian martyr, uh, he had nothing to do with with love. The connection to love was actually made, interestingly enough, by Geoffrey Schosser. Of course, he is most famous for writing the Canterbury Tales he lived in the in the 14th century and he wrote a little poem called the complaint of mars and in it as you can see at the bottom saint valentine is mentioned so this really was the spark that that uh, initiated the celebration of saint valentine's day shakespeare also uh knew about Valentine. And if you care to read Hamlet, you know that in one of uh, Ophelia's uh, speeches, there is the mention of uh, Valentine. There it is, all in the morning be time, and I made at your window to be your Valentine. So there's no question that by the time of, of, of Shakespeare, uh, Valentine was a celebration of, uh, of love. But in between, Uh, The declaration of uh, St. Valentine as being a martyr and Chaucer and Shakespeare, there there was a millennia, about a thousand years when there was no celebration of Valentine as, as, you know, the the, uh, uh, holiday of of love. Valentine's Day cards uh, don't go back all that long, but there's an interesting story here, too because here is uh, what is reputed to be the world's oldest uh, Valentine card that was sold in England for 7,000 pounds. And it dates back, as you can see, to 1790. It is a handmade uh, card and uh, it has an inscription. And uh, very, very interesting one, very nice uh, handwriting. And as you can see, uh, mention of uh, Valentine repeatedly uh, in here. Uh, so there you go, Valentine's, the original Valentine's Day card. But it was really only in the Victorian era that uh, Valentine's, uh, Valentine cards as gifts came to the, uh, to the fore. And there were very, very pretty Valentine's cards made during the Victorian uh, era, which of course was the latter part of the 19th century. And they were hand painted, Uh, really quite nice works of art, uh, featuring little boys, featuring little girls and lots of red hearts. But there were also some uh, uh, sort of less seductive uh, Valentine's Day cards that were shared in, the, in that era. As you can see, this one here, um, a wounded heart uh, with arrows in it. And uh, I don't think anyone would want to get this one. "'Tis a lemon that I hand you and a bid you now skidoo because I love another, there's no chance for you." So that's not the kind of Valentine's Day card that you would like to get. In North America, really, we can trace back sort of the fervent celebration of Valentine's Day to the Hallmark Company, who in the 1910s began to market cards. And again, those were very, very pretty, uh, all all hand-drawn back in those days. And by now, it has become an a gigantic industry, the Valentine's Day cards. And estimates are that this year, there will be about 200 million uh, Valentine cards exchanged on on February 14th. So you can imagine that there's a great deal of money that is involved in that. And the the Valentine's cards have now been joined by chocolates and uh, of course, also roses, which are the classic gifts on Valentine's Day. Why roses? Uh, Because they were supposedly the favorite flower of Venus. And Venus was the Roman goddess of love. Uh, Venus de Milo, of course, the famous statue here uh, displayed in the Louvre. And uh, no, there's no, there are no roses displayed, uh, but legend has it that, that she liked roses. So maybe we'll give her some here, although unfortunately she can't really hold it because she has no arms. So that's uh, the history of, uh, of Valentine's Day, a lot of ambiguity there, but what we know is that it's become a huge holiday, especially business-wise with all the chocolates, all the roses, and all the cards being exchanged on Valentine's Day. But what we are really interested in exploring here is the science behind this fascinating emotion known as as love. Now, obviously, there's a little physics that is involved. But uh, what we're going to focus in on here is the chemistry. What is really going on? Why is it that some people can readily fall in love, whereas uh, others are just not interested? What is going on in the brain? Well, there's plenty that goes on in the brain. And there are numerous molecules that have been associated with uh, the emotion of love. And here are just some of these. Dopamine, for example, uh, which is said to be the pleasure molecule. And drostenol we'll look at that's found in underarm secretions. We'll take a look at phenylethylamine in, in a moment, oxytocin, which is the cuddle chemical as it is known, cantheridin, the active ingredient in Spanish fly. Uh, serotonin, uh, which is an anti-anxiety agent, sildenafil, that's the active ingredient in in Viagra. So there are lots of, of molecules that purportedly can play a role in what happens in the brain when we fall in love. You know the expression, the right chemistry, we use it all the time, use it all the time uh, generally to describe that a team has the right chemistry for winning. Unfortunately, that is not something that we can say in Montreal right now, but in our context here, we're talking about the right chemistry that two people may have that makes them fall in love. So what is that right chemistry? What are these molecules that I just showed you before? Do they actually play some sort of a role? Well, one of the compounds that we looked at was a chemical called phenylethylamine. And uh, in terms of molecular structure, this is a rather simple uh, molecule. But what is interesting is that it's very similar to amphetamine. Let me show you the, the similarity here. We just add on a carbon atom and three hydrogens to that molecule and we have amphetamine. Now, as you know, amphetamine is a stimulant. Uh, Very often, a drug that is sold on the streets uh, to make people get high. But certainly, if you uh, increase your levels of amphetamine, you feel giddy, you feel happier. It's uh, interesting to note that phenylethylamine is so similar to amphetamine. Now, what is the connection though to, to love? Well, it turns out that people who are in love have more circulating phenylethylamine in their bloodstream than people who are not in love. How do we know this? Because metabolites of phenylethylamine are secreted in their urine. So put it very succinctly, people who are in love pee differently from people who are not. You can actually monitor this. You can take samples of urine, and you will find that people who are in love have different urine chemistry, mostly because of the breakdown products of phenylethylamine. So, this is why this uh, interesting molecule has been talked about as the molecule of, of love. Now, where the story gets really interesting is when we note that phenylethylamine is also found in chocolates. So now we have an interesting story here. Phenylethamine, chemical of love, because you find it in the bloodstream of people who are in love, it's also found in chocolate. So maybe now we have the answer of why chocolate is the classic gift that lovers give to their loved ones on Valentine's Day. Because what they are really saying is, hey, here's have some phenylethylamine and fall in love. And hopefully that is with the donor. It's an interesting romanticized story. But unfortunately, the science kind of unplugs it. Because it turns out that chocolates go directly to the hips without passing go in the brain. Phenylethylamine does not cross what we call the blood-brain barrier, so it does not get into the brain. But um, there is uh, another kink in this story, and that is that uh, chocolate is not particularly rich in phenylethylamine. There are other foods which are far, far richer, but which don't make for nearly as romanticized a story. For example, sauerkraut. Sauerkraut contains a lot more phenylethylamine than chocolate. But it's not very romantic to show up on your lover's doorstep with uh, a jar of sauerkraut. Chocolates work mo- much better. Women like chocolate in some instances even more than other activities, as you can see here. This survey showed that British women actually would give up sex before they give up chocolate. Now, why is that? I don't think it has anything to do with the phenylethylamine because as I said, it doesn't get absorbed into the brain even if it's there. What it has to do with is the delightful taste of chocolate. And indeed it is delightful. Chocolate is one of the world's most favored foods. There are many, many compounds that are found in chocolate. Flavonols are just one, but they are responsible for much of the flavor of chocolate. But there are literally dozens and dozens of compounds present in, in chocolate. And that's why you know different chocolates will have quite different taste depending on where the cocoa bean was harvested, how the chocolate is prepared, etc. So there's no question that chocolates taste good. But as you may know. We also have a lot of hype about chocolates, especially when you cruise the internet, you'll find that chocolates are not only delightful for your taste buds, but that they will keep you alive longer, that they can lower your blood pressure, they can make your brain function uh, better. Uh, They contain all kinds of vitamins and, and minerals. This is just a great deal of hype, which really cannot be substantiated. Now it is true that there are some studies that have been done with chocolate, more specifically with cocoa powder uh, that have shown some interesting benefits, but but the amount that is consumed in by the subjects in those studies is far more than what we would normally consume. So I, I, I think it is, wrong to look on chocolate as if it were a drug. It isn't. But I would also say that that, uh, for dessert, it is better to have a couple of squares of dark chocolate than to to have uh, a donut or even to to have chocolate cake. But don't look at it as if it were some sort of miracle uh, because the the amount of the ingredients that are talked about in these hyped uh, posts uh, those amounts are not achievable in uh, normal uh, life. But what about this this business of chocolate forging some sort of connection between people? As I just said, phenylethylamine uh, doesn't get into the brain, and there isn't that much of it in in, in, in chocolate. Uh, there is uh, no food really that that will. Uh, have a love inducing uh, effect. So I like chocolate. Uh, I like to eat a couple of squares, whether it's milk chocolate or dark chocolate, but uh, it really doesn't have anything to do with stirring up any sort of, of emotion. So when it comes to the question of uh, do chocolates uh, foster relationships between people, unfortunately, we have to give that a thumbs down. It just isn't so. No scientific evidence. Well, let's uh, talk about some stuff that we do know scientifically about falling in love. So let's get at the story of the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and a thing called love or so the song says. Let's start at the very bottom with insects, tiny little creatures, but we know a fair amount of their chemistry. Now you know that insects cannot get dressed up to attract their mates. So how do they know when to hook up? This is all controlled by means of chemicals we call pheromones. Now, these are substances that are produced by an organism and they elicit a specific response, unlearned. That is, this is a response that is automatically triggered but it works only in a member of of the same species. So this, for example, is the way that, that bees and flies learn how to mate. They don't have to go to school to know, to react to the pheromones. Whenever they sense the pheromone is in the air, usually wafted out by the female, then the male goes into action. Not all pheromones are sex pheromones. Pheromones in general are signaling molecules and they can even signal a pathway to food. For example, with ants, You may have noticed that when you have ants around the house, you will see them walk in pretty well a line towards a food supply. We can demonstrate that this is due to uh, scout ants who find the food, laying down a path of pheromone for others to follow. Here is a fascinating experiment. Along the blue line, in this, this picture. The ant pheromone has been placed. This is the pheromone that the, the ants secrete when they have found food to send the message to the other ants. So tiny amounts of this pheromone have been placed along the blue line. And as you can see, the ants scurry along following the, uh, the line. Uh, what they are really following is, is a scent the amount of the chemical that they can sense is is vanishingly small. They are very, very good at detecting uh, smells. Now it's not only bees and flies and ants work with pheromones, Uh, so does the cockroach. Nata Americana is the cockroach that uh, we see in North America. Uh, Of course, most people prefer not to see them uh, because they are not exactly an enamored species, but cockroaches are, are certainly interesting little bugs. They have an amazing ability to survive, and uh, it's been said that uh, cockroaches will be around long after humans are gone from, from the earth. They also mate through pheromonal activity. And once again, it is the female that secretes a compound, and that tells the male uh, that uh, she is ready for some action. We know what that chemical is. It has been isolated and its molecular structure determined. And there it is. This is periplanone B. And this is the sex attractant of the, of the cockroach. The molecular structure here is quite a complex one So of course, it's a testimonial to the abilities of chemists to be able to determine exactly how those atoms are joined together to give us perioclonal B. Now, of course, in order to determine its molecular structure and in order to begin any kind of experimentation with this chemical, you first have to be able to isolate it. You have to have it. Well, where do you get it? In this case, they isolated it from the female cockroaches. And in order to get a couple of milligrams to study what this molecule can do and to look at its uh, physiological effects, they extracted 75,000 virgin female cockroaches. Now, how do you know that they were of this uh, sexual persuasion? Uh, because they're separated at birth and they never had a chance to mate. So you know that they were all all virgin. And uh, from uh, the 75,000 virgin female cockroaches, they isolated the incredibly small amount, you can see here of the pheromone. But these days, because of the sophistication of, analytical chemists and their gas chromatographs and mass spectrometers, they can determine molecular structure from such unbelievably small amounts of uh, of substance. So now we know periplanone B is the chemical that the female cockroach releases in order to attract a male for mating. But that's not the most interesting story about this periplanone B. The most interesting story comes to us from the CIA, the US Central Intelligence uh, Agency, basically the American spy network. And the story is that during the days of the Cold War, they were looking for various ways to follow around Soviet agents. Now, of course, it's well known that both the Americans and the Soviets had extensive spy networks in during the days of of the Cold War. Uh, Very, very extensive. If any of you have had the chance to to watch the uh, television series, The Americans, uh, which uh, I think originally was on HBO, but now you can see it on the Disney Channel, uh, which is all about uh, a family, who are living in America as, as Americans, but they are really Soviet spies. And uh, they were, the uh, couple were raised in the Soviet Union, they learned perfect English. And then they were uh, placed in uh, the US where they actually had two children. And uh, the children know nothing about the parents activity. And uh, you have this implanted spy network. It's very interesting. I, I recommend that you watch the uh, the Americans. I, I, I really enjoy it. So anyway, back in the 1950s, there were all kinds of means that were used in order to try to uh, follow spies. And the CIA uh, apparently experimented with using periplanone B, the cockroach attractant, because it was pretty simple to use. All they had to do was to get a little bit of this cockroach perfume, as they called it, onto the person that they wanted to follow. And then you had a rather simple detector system, which was just a bunch of male cockroaches in a glass jar with a perforated lid. And these cockroaches can smell that periplanone B from a very long distance away, so that they were able to follow people out of sight just by seeing the activity of these cockroaches. It's a very, very good story. And it is recorded in a number of books. Uh, It is one of these stories that I I like to say are are too good to check. Because I suspect that if I really started digging into this in detail, uh, it might not be quite like that. But it could be because there's no question that that cockroaches can detect these scents from uh, a great distance uh, away. All right, well, those are little insects and they're quite remote from us. Let's uh, move up the, uh, I guess, sort of the evolutionary scale to come to some more sophisticated creatures like uh, dogs. Well, of course, we speak about puppy love, but this is just a figure of speech. Dogs do not really form close attractions. They do not have romantic relationships. A dog doesn't go out and scrutinize the available talent for its beauty. What dogs do, as those of you have dogs will know, they sniff, they sniff and sniff and sniff. The bloodhound, of course, is the, the classic example. You take out a dog for a walk and it will Start sniffing everywhere. Well, what is it that they are really sniffing for? Well, I'll tell you what they're sniffing for. They're sniffing for a molecule. It's called parahydroxymethylbenzoate, benzoate, which, uh, interestingly enough, you may be more familiar with in a different context. This is a molecule that is referred to as parabens because it can be used in uh, consumer products as a preservative. It just happens to have that particular property. But in the case of dogs, of course, that's not uh, the purpose. This is something that is naturally produced by the female and it entices the male. So the male sniffs some perihydroxymethylbenzoate and he likes it. Now, what is very interesting here in terms of chemistry, is that molecules like this pheromones are very, very specific in molecular structure. You make a small alteration in the molecular structure and it will have a totally different effect. So for example, if we take this uh, hydroxyl group as we call it on, on the molecule, the OH is called the hydroxyl group. And if we were to move this to another position on that molecule, say here, that no longer has any effect on the dog. It totally ignores it. It's as if it wasn't smelling anything. But if we would move it back to the original position, then once again, it regains its attractiveness and the appetite is whetted, and the chase towards the female is on. So we have this molecule, para-hydroxymethylbenzoate, which is produced by the female dog when she's in heat and the male dog senses this. But what if that female dog is yours and you do not want her to have the attention of the male? What can you do? There's a product that's available known as no-mate spray. And all you have to do is spray it on the rear end of the female dog. As, as you can see on the label here, for bitches in season. And uh, of course, in this case here, that word, which is usually a derogatory word, is used in the proper context. This is not a cheap uh, substance. And basically, it just masks the smell of the benzoate, but you don't really need to invest in this because any masking smell will work, even Windex will do that. So what we have established so far is that without any question, that is, there is pheromonal activity in insects, there's pheromonal activity in in, in dogs, but obviously what we are interested in is humans. Is there any chance that there actually are chemicals Never mind the phenylethamine in chocolate. I mean that that is just a story. But is there anything else that can actually stir up our emotions? Isn't it curious that when you ask a lady to assume a sexy pose, she will automatically raise her arms above her head? And there are just plenty of examples of this. We see examples of this in paintings. We see examples of this in statues. Uh, We see examples of this in in movies. Uh, We see examples of this among singers like uh, uh, Shania Twain. And uh, there's a lot of research in trying to find out exactly why this may be so. Why is it that ladies will automatically raise their arms when they feel sexy? Is there something in underarm secretions that actually plays a role in uh, attracting a partner? Well, researchers have looked into this, or in fact, I should say, they have sniffed into this at the Monell Chemical Research Center in Philadelphia. uh, There are a number of scientists whose whole area of research is focused on finding out exactly what body chemistry is in terms of producing smells and whether or not any of those components have uh, the possibility of stirring up romantic, interludes. There are some readily detectable smells. For example, there's a compound that is produced in armpits called androstenol. And this compound has a a musky uh, aroma. And then there is also uh, androstenone, which has a urine-like aroma. These are the two compounds that have raised a lot of interest uh, among researchers. Why? Because these are the kind of compounds that are found in the scent glands of the musk deer. And these scent glands are what that animal uses to attract the male. So we have an interesting scenario here. these scent glands, and here are some of uh, these scent glands that have been removed from the animal, they contain these musky smelling compounds, which have the same kind of fragrance as what we produce in underarm secretions. Now they don't have the same molecular structure. Compounds like muscone, which are produced by the musk deer are quite different in molecular structure from androstenone and but they have the same kind of aroma, which suggests that they fit into the same kind of receptors. Uh, in, uh, on, on cells. Well, as you uh, know, of course, musk is a very marketable smell and there are many, many products on the market that have a, a, a musky odor. Uh, for example, this uh, men's aftershave here and uh, as you can see from the advertising, we cannot be responsible for behavior of young ladies who approach you when you wear Malibu musk. So what is the real science here? What is, what is the story? Is there something to this androstenol or androstenone in terms of attracting a mate? It has been looked at. And here's one interesting study. And this was done in some public laboratories where they put the little patches on the door of the cubicles and on this, these cubicles they either put or did not put androstenol. Now androstenol is one of these compounds has the musky uh, smell. What they noted was very, very interesting. When they put androstenol on the cubicles that were visited by females, they liked it. But men didn't. So we have a situation here where there is actually a scent that is secreted, mostly in male underarm secretions. Women seem to find attractive, men do not. Now where this story takes on even a uh, more fascinating structure is when we take a look at pigs, because pigs also produce these chemicals like And In this case, we know that it is really a pheromone. This is the stuff that is produced by the male pig, the boar in its saliva that attracts the female. This is a fact, we know this because this compound is actually commercially available. Why? For use by farmers when they want to mate a sow, what they will do is sit on top of the animal to mimic the weight of a, of, of a male pig. They will spray the androstenol in front of her nose. And she then of course, stands ready attention, waiting to be mounted by the male. But she's disappointed because the only thing she gets is the artificial insemination rod. But of course, this is of great advantage to the farmer because you can buy sperm, frozen sperm from uh, species of of, of pigs that you would want to to mate. And you can have exactly the kind of offspring that that you would uh, like to have. Interesting commercial product. So just look at the scenario now. We have a substance that you find in human underarm sweat sweat, that is produced mostly by men and women like it. Men don't care for it. But this same compound is produced by male pigs also to sensitize the female. So the same substance, which we know in pigs is sex attractant is also produced in human underarm sweat. Now, since we are unlikely to be preordained to have romantic relationships with with pigs. We come to the conclusion that maybe this compound is a human pheromone as well, because it is demonstrated to be a a pheromone in in pigs. And uh, believe it or not, people and pigs are more alike, perhaps than one would even like to, to, to think. You know, when, you're, uh, when researchers are looking at um, transplants of organs from animals to men, uh, the pig is at the top of the line. And uh, uh, you may have seen recent uh, uh, examples where a pig kidney and a pig heart was transplanted into, into uh, a human. So now we've established that androstenone and androstenol may be human pheromones, at least in theory, based upon what we see in pigs. Of course, you don't need big scientific studies or evidence for marketers to get in on the game, which they have done. And they are already marketing andrastinone as if it were a proven uh, human pheromone, which it, uh, it, it is not what we know is that what they are selling is really an extract of underarm sweat, uh, but obviously that is not the way that it is, it is marketed. And uh, while there are commercial products like this uh, with all kinds of tantalizing advertising, there really is no evidence that the, the stuff works. There are some, some somewhat sketchy studies where women are told to put on a perfume that contains androstenol and go into a bar. And um, some studies claim that they get more attention from, uh, from men, but, but these are not properly controlled uh, trials. Another molecule that is a, it indeed is of interest is oxytocin. Oxytocin also occurs naturally in the body. This is what is known as a cuddle chemical. Now, of course, that opens up all kinds of interesting uh, possibilities. What is it doing in the body? Well, it's actually being secreted by the pituitary gland. It's a hormone. And uh, in humans, it is a hormone that prepares the uh, the uterus uh, when a baby is to be delivered. It is what causes the fractions. But research has also shown that oxytocin in animals has some interesting effects. For example, sheep will reject their young if they are treated with oxytocin antagonists. Now an antagonist is a drug that negates the effect of something else. So in sheep, oxytocin is also very important in giving birth. And if uh, you negate the effects of oxytocin, then the mother sheep does not want to have anything to do with its young. So it seems to to have this forced attraction. When you look at rats, if they are treated with oxytocin, they will then nurture others' pups. So obviously it is forging some kind of a reaction. And female rats, when they are injected with oxytocin, then they bend to the male's desires. Now that of course is something that, that marketers are certainly uh, interested in uh, especially when you add to this that in rats uh, injected oxytocin uh, in the cerebrospinal spinal fluid uh, they get erections. well so far oxytocin really has not been marketed uh, to humans as, as sort of a romance inducing uh, chemical. Uh, because, uh, of course, it it can have some uh, side effects. And the only thing that we know about oxytocin for sure is that it is used in medicine to induce contractions to bring on on labor. And uh, based on the animal experiments, we see also that oxytocin does indeed uh, perform this role of being a cuddle cat chemical because it makes the the mothers look more favorably on their offspring and reject the offspring when the oxytocin is uh, is neutralized. But so far, we we have essentially dismissed these kind of uh, ideas, uh, you know, as as not having enough scientific uh, basis. Is there something though that really can act as an aphrodisiac? Now the term aphrodisiac, one has to to define in terms of, of, of what it is. Aphrodisiacs are molecules that supposedly invigorate the sex drive, which is not the same as falling in love. So is there something that has an aphrodisiac effect? Is there something that one can sniff and bring on desires make someone horny as it were the term aphrodisiac comes from aphrodite that was the greek version of the goddess venus so in theory an aphrodisiac would be a substance that would be a turn-on for sexual desire is there such a thing Purportedly, amyl nitrite is one. Now, amyl nitrite is a drug that is used uh, in the treatment of heart disease because when arteries get constricted, amyl nitrite opens up the uh, uh, the artery. So someone who has angina, for example, can be treated with amyl nitrite. This stuff is also available, usually under the counter in some sex stores. The idea being that it will also trigger dilation of blood vessels in the body. In men, bring on an erection, and in women, increase circulation to the desired part of the anatomy. Amyl nitrite is a very dangerous substance to play around with. In fact, there are cases of of, uh, fatalities from using, uh, amyl nitride. So while indeed it might have an erection inducing effect, this is not something that should uh, ever be attempted because the uh, therapeutic window is very, very small and an overdose can be readily attained. But when we talk about aphrodisiacs, we have to refer to Casanova, the legendary lover who had numerous romantic relationships. And the story is that he was able to induce amorous feelings in ladies by giving them what has come to be called Spanish fly, which is actually an extract of a beetle called the cantharide beetle. And the cantharide beetle contains a molecule called cantharidin. And caridin. Cantheridin is actually an irritant of the urogenital tract. And in men, it can have an interesting effect. There's a classic story that is told about a group of French legionnaires who in the late 1800s were stationed in in, uh, Morocco and uh, they found a pond which was infested with uh, frogs. And they thought that these would make a very good meal So they caught some of these frogs, cooked them up and had some frog legs for supper. And then they started to complain of a condition known as priapism, which is a state of sustained erection. This is not desirable at all. It can be very, very painful. And they actually had to have medical attention uh, for this. And eventually, of course, the condition subsided. Well, it turned out that what happened was that the pond where they had caught the frogs also was surrounded by cantharite beetles. In fact, that's why the frogs were there because the cantharide beetles made for very attractive meals and the frogs' flesh concentrated the cantharidin which then caused this unusual reaction in, in the legionnaires. But cantharidin is not an aphrodisiac. It can have this, this effect, uh, but it does not have any kind of effect on the mind. And even the priapism can be very, very painful. Again, not to be recommended. Historically, people have looked at what is called the doctrine of signatures. This is the idea that God and his or her wisdom has given humans clues about what sort of uh, natural substances, plants, herbs, etc. To use for various kinds of health benefits. And if a plant or part of a plant resembles the human body, then it is supposed to be good either for the entire body or for the particular part of the body that it resembles. For example, ginseng. Well, ginseng is supposed to be an overall stimulant because, as you can see, the root of the ginseng, if you kind of stretch your imagination a little bit, looks like a human body, with a body and arms and and legs. But ginseng does have some stimulant effects like caffeine, but it is not a specific uh, aphrodisiac. Then we have the orchid. If you take a look at the roots of an orchid, it resembles the male testes. And that's why orchids Uh, are also associated with with, uh, aphrodisiac effects because they are supposed to invigorate those particular parts of the male anatomy. But there really isn't anything in orchids that that chemically would do that. Uh, Even avocados, of course, have been said to have aphrodisiac properties because they also resemble the human testes. And uh, so does uh, asparagus reputedly have such a, a property. Uh, But again, there's just nothing scientific uh, to this, although they may induce somewhat of a placebo effect. Then we have the story of oysters. These are supposed to be aphrodisiacs conforming to the theory of signatures because their uh, shape and texture vaguely resemble parts of the female genitalia. Uh, But there's really nothing in oysters that has this effect. What about cannabis? Uh, Cannabis will in fact, make you drowsy. So it doesn't really stir up any kind of activity. And alcohol, well, James Bond may have liked alcohol, but if you remember those classic lines from Macbeth, it promotes the desire, but takes away the performance because uh, uh, alcohol uh, will depress uh, any uh, such activity, or, you know, desire. In Africa, there's a fascinating fungus, a mushroom known as phallus impudicus. And um, obviously, uh, according to theory of signatures, it has a aphrodisiac effect, but science has not been able to show anything like that. And anyone who tries it is uh, severely disappointed. and if, if you believe in the theory of signatures, you can look at all kinds of plant material and conjure up the notion that because of its shape, it should have an effect on the human body. But the fact is that these aphrodisiac effects are in the mind. And if you believe that they will do something, then they just might. There is unfortunately no product that will uh, Deliver the promise of, of instant sex. There's no product that will put you uh, into the mood. Uh, and, you know, obviously, when you ever visit any of these uh, sex stores, they will promote all of these kind of products, suggesting that uh, you know they will warm up the relevant areas of the body. That's what emotional lotion is supposed to uh, do, but they're certainly not aphrodisiacs. If you really want to have an aphrodisiac effect, there's only one way to do that. And that is to be nice to each other. That will trigger the right kind of of relationship. So I I hope that I've been able to give you a little bit of insight into this fascinating uh, emotion and that there is some chemistry that is involved in, in love But uh, it is generally overstated. And I'm sure that come February 14th, next week, uh, many newspapers and and, uh, magazines will trot out the old story about chocolate being the gift of lovers because of the phenylethylamine uh, contains. Unfortunately, there is no real magic in having people fall in love other than to be nice to each other. Okay, let me just remind you that uh, we do have a website where you can find all kinds of interesting articles and uh, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Um, I, uh, uh, we also have a Facebook page, we have uh, Twitter. Uh, everyone must tweet these days and uh, you can always email me also at uh, joe.schwartz.mcgill.ca if you have any kind of uh, uh, questions. And uh, certainly if you have uh, any questions now, uh, we can uh, try to answer them because I think we do have a couple of, uh, of minutes.
0: So we have an ooh-la-la sort of question in the chat. Is oxytocin involved in the orgasm response?
1: Yeah, uh, this has been uh, looked at, uh, as, as you might imagine. And uh, there is an increase in, in oxytocin in the bloodstream at that particular moment. That is true. But the reverse has never been shown. It has never been shown that it can induce that moment. So while we do know that, that uh, levels of oxytocin in the blood rise at orgasm, There is no study, certainly that I have seen, where increasing levels of uh, of oxytocin uh, from the outside will trigger an orgasm. But as you can imagine, (laughs) if that were the case, uh, there would be big market potential for that.
0: We await further questions.
1: If anyone has questions about anything else, I
0: mean, we can you know, handle that, uh,
1: that as well. Uh, I mean, I think in, in past weeks, we have pretty well handled all of the uh, COVID uh, questions. And uh, the story is still the same. It is still better to get the vaccine than not get the vaccine. It's not the uh, magic staff that is going to lead us out of the wilderness, but it will keep you out of the uh, ICU, which of course is, uh, is important. And uh, I, I think that uh, we are uh, at a stage now where, I mean, this is a much used expression that we're going to have to learn to live with this because you can't just cocoon ourselves for forever. And uh, we'll have to, take some, some risks and uh, just see what happens. But, you know, with, with a high percentage of vaccines and uh, people who are already infected and therefore have natural immunity, I think we have a pretty good chance of, of, of reducing infection rates.
0: Oh, I see another question popping up. Does a hug induce oxytocin?
1: a what a hug a
0: hug a hug
1: oh a hug you know, those, oh yeah. you know those
0: things we can't okay. do th- okay. with covid
1: yeah i thought you said hog like I <laughs> <Okay. laughs> <laughs> i don't know why you'd want to go around hugging a hog okay yeah um it's supposed to be the other way around it's not the hu- hug that induces oxytocin it is increased levels of oxytocin that stimulate you to hug others that's why it's called the cuddle chemical and uh, again you know uh, women just after they give birth have higher levels of oxytocin and they do like to hug the new baby but again that may not be due to the oxytocin the oxytocin may be at a high level then because it is what induces the contractions to deliver the baby so you know just if we come back to the old story that we see in so many contexts that that uh, association is not the same as cause and effect. So just because we see that that uh, women have higher levels of oxytocin and they tend to hug their babies more, doesn't mean that it is because of the oxytocin. Uh, that, that would require experimentation where you take people and inject them with oxytocin to see whether or not it in, induces them to start hugging others. It would be an interesting experiment to do.
0: We just have a comment from the same person saying that they swear they felt euphoria after hugging a sibling and a son after a long time.
1: Well, I won't argue against that. Uh, You know, uh, certainly may have felt euphoria. Whether that was due to the oxytocin or not, uh, who knows. But there's, uh, there's no argument, I think, to make against hugging. So by all means, go and hug, providing that the recipient wants to be hugged.
0: I think that's all the time we have for hey. today. Thank you so much, Dr. Schwartz. What a fascinating topic and what a, an optimal one. Oh, wait, last question. It's just coming in. If male dogs are sniffing for the female pheromone, what do female dogs sniff for?
1: They don't. They just wait for the male's attention. Okay. I mean, oh, you mean like when you're taking a, a dog out on, uh, on, yeah. on a walk? Yeah, that's a very good question. Very good question. I, I, um, I think they're sniffing for a male dog you know, the the remnants that the male dog may have uh, have left, because the uh, male dogs not only sniff for uh, parahydroxymethylbenzoid, they also produce some. But yeah, that's a very interesting uh, question, because female dogs, of course, also sniff, although not quite as as uh, voraciously as, as the males. Yeah, that's a good question. I'll have to look into that a bit more.
0: All right. We've given given you a challenge. That's fun. (laughs) Thank you everyone for tuning in and we will see you again next month for another Science Demystified. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye.